Father, we thank you. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would go before the pages. Thank you for their testimony. Well, Lord, I know there's many in this room who are also struggling with health issues. There are those who have an empty seat at the Thanksgiving table this year. And for others, gathering around just isn't quite the same. So, Father, I just ask that uh, as we come to the text this morning, that you would help us to kind of block some things out and allow your scriptures to speak so clear to us. We are a grateful people. We need to be a grateful people, for indeed you have blessed us beyond measure. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Psalm 97. If you've been with us, you're going, wait a minute, that's not First Peter, you're correct. Psalm 97, we're taking a little break this week and next as we look at the subject of praise and gratitude. We thought it'd be appropriate in light of thanksgiving. The Psalter, that is the book of Psalms, found nestled in the Old Testament, contains a variety of Psalms that, that if, with certain characteristics that can be placed in particular categories. Often for a Thanksgiving service, the pastor would have selected a Psalm of praise. This morning, I, I doubt, I dare say there are many, the thought of praise might be difficult to express this week. Oh, we can do the lip sync, the words, and even carry the facade that is all glorious. But deep down, the thought of celebrating Christmas, or <laughs> Christmas, Thanksgiving, this week is similar to rearranging the China on the Titanic. Whether what is happening in our society, such as the political scene with the recent advancement of a bill passed in the Senate, or the positioning of world powers on the brink of world war, to personal issues such as health, cancer, relationships, loss of a spouse, a job, or finances, gratitude has been smothered, not in gravy, but disappointment, sorrow, frustration, and worry. This morning, instead of tackling a psalm of thanksgiving, I thought it'd be far more significant to examine what we call an enthronement psalm. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll agree with me and you'll be grateful we did. So let's look at Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, the psalmist declares. Let the earth be happy. Let the many coastlands rejoice. In other words, all those far in the remote regions join with us in praising our God. Dark clouds surround him. Equity and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him. On every side it burns up his enemies. His lightning bolts light up the world. The earth sees, trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of the whole earth. The sky declares his justice, and all the nations see his splendor. All who worship idols are ashamed, those who boast about worthless idols. All the gods bow down before the Lord. Zion hears and rejoices. The towns of Judah are happy because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. You are elevated high above all gods. You who love the Lord and hate evil, 
He protects the lives of his faithful followers. He delivers them from the power of the wicked. The godly bask in the light. And the morally upright experience joy. You godly ones rejoice in the Lord. Give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 97, as I just mentioned, is what we call an enthronement psalm. There are a few of these, five of them, nestled in the Psalter. And they focus on the royal imagery associated with the Lord. It depicts him on his throne. He's the great creator. He's the divine warrior and the great judge. And their characteristics that you often see with these enthronement psalms is one, Yahweh's kingship is rooted in righteousness. And that's vital. It's vital to a people who, who need to know God is right, God is just. Secondly, a characteristic is Yahweh's kingship is universal. His rule resides over all of creation, every nation, all peoples. And we're going to see that as we go through this psalm. One scholar writes, Yahweh, or that is the Lord's, imperial rule is rooted in creation. It's earlier too, and therefore not dependent on Israel, the Davidic monarchy, or the fate of Jerusalem. God's authority over all the other nations arises out of his fact that he created the world, including the nations, not out of Israel's historical conquest of them. And so the final aspect you're going to see in these enthronement psalms is that God's reign is comprehensive. Since it's prior to the creation, it, it, it existed, it's for all eternity, and there's always a future element to the enthronement psalms. This is why they're usually not assigned to a specific event in the life of Israel or in the life of the, the psalm writer. For instance, Psalm 51 is rooted in David having committed sin with Bathsheba. There's, there's no necessary historical event behind Psalm 97 because similar to the enthronement psalms, it, it discusses God has reigned in the past and we know that he will reign forever. And so that's what's driving this psalm. Well, if you have an outline, which is the backside of your bulletin, if you're following online, there, you can break this psalm down into three sections. The first of these is the announcement in verse one. The Lord reigns. And again, stated in, in many of the enthronement psalms, and the tense tells us that it's ongoing. In other words, it's here now, and he is always reigning. There, there's no gap. <laughs> there's no secession of power. There's no time that he has to take off of serving on the elder board. Uh-uh. He's on it at all times. And notice this call to rejoice. There are several elements here. First of all, it's based on assurance. The Lord indeed reigns. He has complete sovereignty. There's nothing to threaten it, and most of all, certainly not the kings of the earth, the enemies of Israel. And the earth, notice, has no option but to join in. There's no, there's no wish or desire. I, I hope you can join us in this rejoicing. No, 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 no. It's a call. Everyone needs to rejoice. It's universal. All people. There are no exceptions. Well, I've had a bad day. Sorry. Well, you don't understand the past. Sorry. You don't know who I live with. Sorry. It's a call. Everyone is called to serve the Lord and rejoice in his name. And then the psalmist does something great. This declaration of verse 1 now comes down to saying, okay, 
Let me show you this God that we serve. Let's look at him in his epiphany or how he presents himself. And you'll notice in verses 2 all the way through 6, it takes us to creation, doesn't it? The central message of the Bible, time and time again, concerns the condition of the entire world and its destiny. It's not just a few individuals. It's all of us. We're part of a much larger whole. And when we start with the Lord, I would argue, rather than ourselves, it places everything in the right perspective. I love building puzzles, but I'll tell you, if you can have the border done, and at least if I have a picture on the box of the puzzle, it makes a life a lot easier. I can see the grand scheme of things. And Psalm 97 is trying to do that. It's saying, listen, let's step back for a minute. Who is this God that we serve? What's transpiring here? What do we need to see? And so the psalmist provides the border, the picture for the puzzle, which is creation. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But let's look at verse 2. Notice the descriptors he uses from creation. He says, first of all, dark clouds. The dark clouds throughout the Old Testament refers of judgment. <laughs> you really can't see through, but he's sitting up there in those clouds. In other words, he's not a static deity. He's not some old man who wound a clock and hoped things turn out okay on planet Earth. Uh-uh. He's intimately involved in human affairs. It's dynamic. This is our deity that we serve. And notice it says the dark clouds surround him. And I love the foundation of his throne. It it's, states it's equity, it's justice. Another way to word this is righteous judgment is the foundation. Righteousness will be repeated in verse 6. Judgment uh, uh, is also repeated in verse 8. It's vital. And we'll come back to this in a minute. But this is the basis from which he reigns. Fire is seen in verse 3. Fire goes before him, obviously indicating wrath. One scholar states one can claim that punishment is not the main goal of God's righteousness, but it is part of it. <laughs> Redemption and salvation, I would argue, cannot be achieved if God does not proceed against the wicked. If you doubt that, just look to the cross. Because it's where Christ bore the sin that we should have endured. And so we see dark clouds, we see fire, then we see lightning. I mean, this is quite an effect, right? As, as the psalmist is calling in the created order, lightning in the ancient world was also associated with divine judgment. It was an element of human fear. My great grandfather was killed by lightning and so my grandfather anytime there was a storm lightning he did not do well <laughs> it made him anxious because he remembered when his grandfather was killed out in the field and lightning had that fear instilled in people and you see here the psalmist stating listen his, his lightning bolt lights up the world the earth sees and it trembles the earth is mentioned several times in this psalm. It's repeated three times, actually, and along with world and earth. And we see this geological changes. In fact, we're told the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. All these occurrences are associated with this one who sits on a righteous throne, one who will judge just as he has in the past, he will in the future. The psalmist is going somewhere with this. Just bear with us for a moment. But we see throughout Scripture, the Lord 
calling up his creation, nature, to do his bidding, usually in the association of judgment, and he will in the future. Joel uh, 2, Amos 5 talk about this. But even think of Judges 4 and 5 where we are told that the brook of Kishon fought against Sisera and the Canaanites against the Israelites. So Joel 2 and Amos 5 talk about, hey, there's a day coming, the great day of the Lord. Mountains will melt like wax. Moon will turn to blood, lightning. It's what we look to this cosmic change that will occur in the future. And so the psalmist is saying, listen, all of creation will do the Lord's bidding. Uh, a modern illustration is what occurred back in the 1940s. Uh, Operation Overload, or Lord, excuse me, is one of the most miraculous events in stories of World War II. D-Day. You remember this, the invasion? It was vastly complex, but it all hinged on the weather. <laughs> it had to fall just right. A low tide at first light was needed to expose beach and obstacles. A full moon over midnight the night before was necessary for airborne operations across the five beaches. It took Hitler four years and a vast proportion of Germany's resources to build the Atlantic Wall. It took the Allies one day to breach it. Oh yes, it cost a lot of lives. But what was the, the secret? It was the weather. <laughs> And you see God's hand. And the psalmist is saying, listen, we've seen God's hand in creation. And we're going to see it again because our God reigns. It all is under his control. Well, there are several implications, isn't there, as we move in further into the psalm. But first, the wicked are held in check. We see this. The Lord will vindicate his name and his people. They're not going to get off. They're gonna, they will be held accountable. Secondly, the righteous can live safely and free. Why? Because our God reigns. He's in charge. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death, life, angels, heavenly rulers, things that are present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we are his. If you know Christ as your savior, you're one of his and he will protect just as is promised in this psalm to all of God's people. And that fits with the final implication and that the Lord is sovereign. Nothing is exempt or excused before him. He sees all. And so Psalm 97 verse 6 summarizes the first few verses. It says, the sky declares his justice and all the nations see his splendor. The righteousness, justice are repeated, referring to divine acts of victory. And the psalmist is reminding, listen, this is the one we serve. This is the one who reigns. Whether the situation seems impossible or if you feel like you're about to lose your mind because the truth has been so twisted, we can rest in knowing we serve a righteous God. In fact, the text tells us here, the nations will see his splendor. That term is often translated as glory. <laughs> Wayne Grudem states of glory, it's the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. It's who he is. It's intrinsic to who he is, is his glory. 
It's interesting, when Moses asked to see God's glory, remember in the latter part of Exodus, Exodus 33, the Lord said, yeah, I will, I'll pass by. But notice what the Lord says. I will make all my goodness pass before you. You see, our God, is, his glory is inerrant in his majesty. All that he is and the whole earth as without excuse. They see his splendor. They declare his righteous. And so this morning, righteous, glorious, this is our God. And so perhaps this week in the midst of the festivities or the lack thereof, you may need this reminder. Current circumstances, inward turmoil, or empty seats at the dinner table suggest otherwise. But don't forget, <laughs> our God is glorious and he is righteous. The effects of this epiphany, the effects of seeing the Lord and all that he is, is found then in verses 8 through 11. Notice the text. Sorry, starting in verse 7. All who worship idols are ashamed. You think, well, that's strange. You talked about the Lord and now you come to idols, but not really. Because this verse is a reminder that God's glory, his righteousness, all that we've just talked about, has been shared there's no one that can claim, I didn't know, right? And so, number one, this one who sits above all, who the earth sees his glory, his splendor, he said, yes, and yet you, you worshiped idols. And it's, it is a reminder that general revelation or God's creation is sufficient to condemn. There is no one without excuse. When I look at verses 4 and 8, judgment was visible to all. Verse 6, God's glory is visible to all. Then you have Psalm 19, Romans 1. God has revealed himself, and yet you have these idolaters. It's an indictment on humanity, isn't it? You say, well, what is idolatry? It's been defined as an attempt to make the cosmos amenable, palatable, useful to human manipulation and control. Whether it's arguing that the baby in the womb needs to be aborted because it's too inconvenient or the pronouns need to be altered to fit who I am, the creator is no longer preeminent in his creation. The irony here in verse 7 is you, you see God in all his glory. And you get to verse 7, the irony is that the creatures have the audacity to worship the creation or nature or perhaps themselves or the works of their own hands, rather than the creator. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who created it by his hands. Psalm 33, by the Lord's decree, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all the starry host. He piles up the water of the sea. He puts the oceans in storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let those who live in the world stand in awe of him. After reading the first few verses, this one who is in the dark clouds, the one who summons the fire, the one who summons the lightning, you would expect all of humanity to bend their knee. And yet we get to verse 7 and it says, all of you who worship idols, they don't stand in awe. No, instead, the text tells us, you will be ashamed. <laughs> you better believe it. The ridicule, the disgrace that follows the, the failing result of, of something you've undertaken. And what, what have you done? You've not given credit to God. 
Psalm 31, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Same word. In your righteousness, deliver me. I, I, I don't want to be like them, the psalmist declares. Interestingly, Adam and Eve before the fall were described as ones who did not have shame before God. They walked with God. They understood. And so the psalmist says, I mean, it's like slamming on the brakes, right? You see God again in all his glory, and then you get to these ones who deny his glory and have the audacity to worship something other than God himself. Those who boast about worthless idols, and then the text tells us they will all bow down. They're useless. Think of Psalm 1 Samuel 5. Remember the scene with the Ark of the Covenant and the Philistines capture it and they put it in the temple with Dagon, the, uh, the, the, uh, the god, and they go back the next day and the idol has fallen down before the Ark. And that's what the psalmist is saying. All these worthless gods, these ones you've made, they're nothing. They will fall down before the sovereign God of the universe. And we see why they're ashamed. We see why they're worthless. Because of, again, the invalu- they have nothing to bring to God. They're not the creator, unlike the one that we see in verses 2 through 6. Contrasted with the idolaters are those in verse 8. Zion hears, God's people in Jerusalem here, and the towns of Jerusalem, those who surround, says they will become happy because, why? Of your judgments, O Lord. The judgments aren't specified, but they speak of overcoming hostile powers, of deliverance, of security. In other words, God is going to vindicate his people, and they know that. And so they can rejoice. And the Lord is high, verse 9. You are the one who reigns above all the earth. It's repeated again. Unlike the, the, the gods who are graveling in the dirt before you, you reign supreme and you sit high above. And so what's the assurance to God's people? We see this in verses 10 through 12. You who love the Lord. Literally, it means the lovers of Yahweh. These are the people of pure devotion. They're the ones who seek to walk in obedience. John 14, if you love me, you keep my commandments. These are the ones that despise evil. Notice what the text says. You who love the Lord hate evil. You hate anything that tarnishes the Lord's name and his reign and all that he is. It's an activity that's harmful. It's destructive. And for those who do, it says, the Lord protects the lives of his faithful followers. The tense, again, here is ongoing. It's the same God. Remember, it's the same God that fire (laughs) extends from him, the lightning bolts, that mountains melt before him, the one who declares justice. This same God is the God who preserves his people. And so the psalmist says, we need to rejoice. The wicked will not triumph, not ultimately. Evil will be dealt with. Justice will be delivered. Vindication. And he says, the godly bask in the light, the joy, the experience of divine favor upon his people. And so he says to the godly ones, rejoice. The Lord reigns and he acts. Notice the contrast here in this psalm between the unrighteous and the righteous, the unrighteous worship false gods. The righteous worship the one true God. 
they're ashamed, they're grateful. They're empty, they're spiritually rich. They're under judgment, they're under God's blessing. They live in darkness, they live in light. This group fears and the righteous rejoice. <laughs> no wonder the psalmist concludes with give thanks to his holy name. As you see there in the latter part of the verse, his reference again speaks to the Lord's uniqueness and his greatness. So, all right, Hophetitz, thank you for enlightening us on the enthronement psalm. But what do we do with this? And there's some application there in your notes. And the first of these is our Lord's awesomeness. This one that has been described above the heavens is matched by his incredible love for us. We have a God who's intimately involved in providing 24-hour access. There's no job needed here. <laughs> There's no posted sign for employment. We've been studying 1 Peter, and I thought it would be appropriate in the application to tease out 1 Peter and what we've studied thus far in light of this psalm. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. <laughs> That's God's love. Think about it. His love emanates from his own character. It doesn't depend on our loveliness or what we offer in exchange. What do I mean by that? Well, Thanksgiving is coming. And I don't know about you, but I, I love turkey. You know, it's good, it's yummy, it's satisfying, right? And, and my love comes because when I see that large bird there on the platter, that's exciting, right? That's lovely. The, the turkey has extrinsic value to uh, conditioning my love for it. That is not the case before a holy God as we stand. God's love is one of his perfections in accordance with his other attributes. There was no intrinsic value that warranted God's love for us. You say, where do you get that? 1 John 4, 19, we love because what? He first loved us. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, here is love, not that we loved God, we didn't, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, this Thanksgiving, we rejoice. We bask in this one who, who sits above the heavens, who has placed the stars, who will judge, who will vindicate. That same God loves us dearly and has bestowed his grace upon us through his son as reiterated in 1 Peter 1. Secondly, our Lord's sovereignty eliminates fears of today and concerns for the future. And this is one of the reasons I selected this psalm for us as a congregation going into this season. 1 Peter 1.5 says, Who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You say, well, yeah. <laughs> You've not been diagnosed with leukemia. You don't understand. And I love the testimony from Ron and Beverly. God's ways are mysterious. At times he seems inactive or strangely silent. His answers, face it, his answers to our prayers may not be as we always expect. It may mean that some of the most antagonistic forces against the church may be the very tools the Lord is using for his glory. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous pastor of, in London in the 1900s who pastored through World War II, wrote a book called From Fear to Faith. It was written shortly after World War II, or at least it was his, uh, a bunch of his sermons were put together. He makes this statement, there is nothing more consoling or reassuring when oppressed by the problems of history and wondering what is it to happen in this world than to remember that the God whom we worship is outside the flux of history. He has preceded history. He has created history. His throne is above the world and outside time. He reigns in eternity, the everlasting God. So, we could echo the words that Joseph said to his brothers when they thought after Joseph had revealed himself and all that they had done to him, they were certain Joseph was going to slit their throats. That was it. So at least throw them into prison. Joseph said, while you meant it for evil, God intended it for good. The sovereignty of God, knowing this one reigns, it's why Charles Spurgeon can say, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. That's our God. We are foolish if we think that the problems we're facing are exceptional and peculiar as a church in this day and age in this country. While we are encountering, or what we are encountering, is what God's people have experienced through time. But there's a day coming. And the psalmist is trying to, to, to highlight that. There is a day coming when all of this will be dealt with. Don't forget, our God sits on a righteous throne. He will vindicate. And so, when you're tempted to question the goodness and holiness and power of God, if you're tempted to ask, why does God allow this in my life? Why doesn't the Lord intervene and help? Look to the one who sits on the throne. O Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder, the writer of the hymn, How Great Thou Art, states, Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. <laughs> so for some in this room, this week is a bit daunting Thanksgiving, you would rather get choked on the bones of the turkey than have to celebrate Thanksgiving. Our God reigns. He is sovereign. He loves us so much. And there's a third in your notes, and that is our God's greatness calls for us to rejoice and praise his name. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9 says, Although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials, such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is far more valuable than gold. And we praise and glory, we praise him, we give glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. For though you've not seen him, you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And so you rejoice. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, thanksgiving dominates the New Testament in light of God's greatest act of deliverance, and that is through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Our lives should be marked by praise for our God, because in eternity, it will be. <laughs> so learn it now. You know, gratitude eclipses our wants with contentment. Gratitude exchanges our confusion into clarity. 
Gratitude makes our disappointments into acceptances, and gratitude turns our temptations into opportunities to glorify the Lord. Even secular research, I was reading an article this week of, of gratitude and its impact upon the brain. Might shock you, but it, it helps with the learning and decision-making process, and they have found that gratitude, if it persists, has long-term effects, not to mention how it plays upon the immune system, fewer aches, lowers blood pressure, deeper sleep. So, this week, as you reflect on our God who sits on a throne and who loves you dearly and who will vindicate the crud that we face in this world, take some time to give thanks to God. You say, well, uh, how, do, how do we do that? Well, let me give you a few suggestions. Take some time this week to list five areas for which you're thankful. Five, that's all. If you can't come up with five, call me. We'll figure it out. When you're growing impatient or tired, take a couple of extra minutes and identify one area in which you're grateful. When you're stressing out because company's coming and the bathroom's not cleaned and, you know, certain people didn't lift the lid, this is not good. What are you going to do? Right? Spend some time. Lord, thank you. I'm thankful I've got a family. Sit down and write a thank you note to the Lord. At the Thanksgiving table, many of you tell me you do this. Go around and share one thing you're thankful for this Lord, for this season. I thank the Lord for him. I thank the Lord for others. No, no, no. Ugh. Be specific. Go for the juggler. Name certain things that you're grateful to the Lord for. Perhaps start a gratitude journal this year. We have so much to be thankful for. It's why the psalmist can call out at the very beginning, the Lord reigns, let the earth be happy. And it's how he can close out this letter. Has the situation changed? Nope. We don't know the situation, but I can assure you in writing these 12 verses, you know, I'm sure the, the suffering is still there, the disappointments are there, the concerns are still there, but he can state at the end, give thanks to his holy name. Father, indeed, we want to thank you. We want to be people that are grateful. And Father, I confess there are situations in life that you, you see happening around this globe and even within our church family, such as Ron battling cancer. It's difficult. But as Psalm 97 reminds us, no, 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 no. You, O oh Lord, sit on the throne. You are the one who holds all things together. You are the one who reigns with justice and righteousness. And you will vindicate. And in the process, we who call you our Lord, our God, can come to you and bask in your presence. Thank you. Thank you, O oh Father. In the name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus, we pray.